Well, good evening, everyone. It's very good to see you all. And uh, if we haven't met before, my name is, is Johnny. I'm the pastor, part of the leadership team here, and um, I will not be speaking until nine o'clock. I can assure you we will finish long before then. Uh, thank you very much to, to Duncan uh, for leading us and for, to, to Phil for reading from Romans for us. If you do have a Bible, as Duncan mentioned, it is quite a rich passage this evening. It would be good to have that open in front of you uh, to make sure that what's being said isn't just from me, uh, but is from, from, from the scriptures themselves. Before we think about it together, though, let me pray for us and ask for God's help. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we've read in recent weeks in Genesis 1 and 2 that you spoke the world, the stars, the planets into existence from nothing. That your words are creative and are immensely powerful. And so we pray this evening that the same creative and powerful words would please be at work in us by your Holy Spirit as we spend time thinking about it over the next few minutes and would make each of us to be more and more like Jesus. We ask these things in his name's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, um, one of Charles Dickens' most celebrated works is a book called Great Expectations. It tells the story of a young boy called Pip, who is an orphan raised by his elder sister and by her husband in Kent in England. Life is quite hard for Pip until he's given money by an anonymous benefactor. And that money changes everything, including Pip's aspirations and his expectations for his own life. It allows him to, to realize his dream of moving to the bright lights of London and living life as a wealthy gentleman. And yet as the story progresses, reality destroys Pip's great expectations. London isn't a gold-paved paradise. It's filthy. It's rat-infested. It's grim. He's not going to become a rich gentleman. He's going to become a hard-working shipping agent. And rather than being a guiding light, Pip's great expectations end up becoming an overwhelming burden to him. And I wonder this evening whether Pip might not be the only one whose great expectations for life end up becoming burdensome. This is, as Duncan mentioned, the final Sunday evening in our series in what is sometimes called the doctrine of humanity or what the Bible tells us about being humans made in the image of God. And we saw last week as we studied Genesis 3 together and Duncan's read from it this evening already that things were not as they were meant to be. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden and from right relationship with him. And even the earth itself was cursed. But baked into that dreadful story about humanity's fall was hope. God promised that one day someone would come who would crush the serpent, who would do away with evil and all its effects. And for those of us who are Christians, we know that person to be Jesus. We've sung of him this evening that he has acted in a decisive way at the cross, not only to deal with our sin, our rebellion against him, but also to deal with all its dreadful effects on ourselves and on our world, to make things right again. And that means that Christians have plenty of reasons to have great expectations. 
expectations, both for the world we live in and for ourselves. And yet those expectations, they're so often unmet, aren't they? Just look at the world around us. It seems quite clear that the earth itself remains broken. We might point to any number of examples of that. On Friday this past week, for example, reports emerged of seven people being swept away by flooding in Kenya. Those seven were adding to 64 others who'd already died in that flood and 150,000 people displaced from their homes as a result of that flood, all according to the Kenyan Red Cross. It doesn't seem like the brokenness of the world has been fixed yet, does it? In many respects, we could say the same of ourselves. Physical sickness still plagues us as human beings, doesn't it? Some of us in this church family are facing that acutely right now. Again, that isn't what we might expect at this point in salvation history. Much like Pip in Dickens' work, it might well be that Christians' great expectations can end up becoming burdensome. Did Jesus' death on the cross really fix things with our world, we might ask ourselves? Or is this as good as it's ever going to get? Well, in Romans 8, Paul intends to address just that kind of question to rightly calibrate our expectations. And he does that in two ways. He does it by firstly assuring us of our future experience if we are Christians that things really will be better one day. We can be absolutely cast iron sure of it. And he does it secondly by affirming our present experience that though it might not always feel like it right now, this is how things are meant to be at this point in God's plan, both for our world and for ourselves. And he looks at both of those time markers, the future and the now, through the lens of three key characters in the world we live in. Firstly, through the lens of creation in verses 18 to 22. Secondly, through the lens of Christians and of our experience of the world in verses 23 to 25. And thirdly, through the lens of God, the Holy Spirit, God himself in verses 26 to 30. And so we're just going to spend our time walking through each of those in turn now. Let's do that firstly under the heading. Thank you very much, uh, Johnny. Creation groans as it waits, assuring us of the glory to come, verses 18 to 22. Now, uh, every childbirth is different. We've been through three such experiences, my wife Fiona and I. Granted, I was a bit more of a spectator than Fiona was. One of them took, took a particularly long time, quite a number of hours, the most recent of which took a startlingly short time. Our eight-month-old little girl almost arrived in the car park at ARI as it happens. Each one is different. But it is fair to say that every time it happens, every time a child is born, no matter how it happens, it is a distinctly uncomfortable experience. It's just possible if my wife Fiona were here now, she'd be telling me that uncomfortable is underselling things a tad. The labor ward is quite a noisy place as women in labor express that pain. And in Romans 8, Paul says that our world is no different. He pictures the world we live in as a woman in labor. Just read that with me again. Verse 19 of Romans chapter 8. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The world we live in is groaning. 
It is in pain, figuratively speaking. And the reason it's groaning, the reason that it's in pain, is that it's subject to bondage and decay. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And that might well be ringing some bells with us. We've seen already this evening that after Adam and Eve rebelled against God in Genesis 3, God subjected the world to a curse. Cursed is the ground because of you, God said to Adam. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It'll produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. All is not well with the world. And I don't think I need to persuade you all that much of that truth, I suspect. What we might need more persuading of, though, is that creation's groaning is God's doing. I know that these aren't everyone's cup of tea. I really enjoy a good-nature documentary from time to time. That You might think less of me as a result of revealing that this evening, but I especially enjoy the big set-piece documentaries, the blue planets or the planet Earths of this world that are filmed over years and years. There are, though, a, a few sort of key features of that kind of series, things you come to expect, a bit of a formula, if you like. So there's the opening montage that sets up the series, which is invariably breathtaking. There's the documentary episode that tells you all about how the series was filmed, showing the, the solitary cameraman or woman sitting in a tent in the jungle for weeks and weeks just to capture footage of a rare jungle possum. And then there's the final episode of each series. And that follows a bit of a formula too, usually. It shows ice caps melting and habitats shrinking. An animal's right on the edge of extinction. Often David Attenborough himself is wheeled out to deliver a compelling piece to camera, calling people to stop destroying the planet. And there is a sense in which our time in the book of Genesis over the past few weeks has affirmed that we ought to do some of that, that humanity are stewards over the created order. God gave humanity the world to tend and to keep it, not to destroy it. So we ought to use it wisely as stewards. And yet at the same time, there is also a sense that the world is broken at a far more fundamental level than we can do anything about. And it has been since Genesis 3 that cyclones and flooding and natural disasters, they aren't all caused by our profligacy with the planet now. They're caused by humanity's sin right at the beginning. The world is fractured. It is groaning. But the groaning of childbirth doesn't just convey pain and anguish, does it? It also conveys pain that is laced with hope. Hope that when the pain is at an end, there will be new life. And again, that is the same with the created order. It groans because all is not well, but because Jesus has come. Because he has died and risen again, it groans in hope. Verse 21. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One day, says Paul, the groaning of childbirth will end. At which point, this period of painful labor will be but a memory. 
And what is it that's the trigger for that end? Well, it isn't that Extinction Rebellion achieve what they hope to achieve. It isn't that we manage to divest ourselves of fossil fuels sooner than anticipated, laudable though that might be. The trigger to this ending is verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God. One day, God's purposes with humanity will be fully realized. The work that God has begun in his people as Christians will be at an end. And on that day, the groaning of our world will be over. All things will be remade. And I wonder if you can see how that begins to address those great expectations we might have as Christians. How it actually affirms those expectations in one sense. That because God has dealt with our biggest problem through the death and resurrection of Jesus, well, we can be sure that the creaking created order will one day be remade. Things one day will be wonderful. See, the problem isn't that our expectations are too high. It's that they're often mistimed. Because that wonderful future will only fully happen, will only, verse 18, be fully revealed when God's plan reaches its end point. And that means that whilst we're right to have great expectations for the future, we're also able to have the right expectations for today. See, we needn't be thrown by the fact that things are still groaning. That does not mean that God's plan has been thwarted or that the cross didn't really do what it was meant to do. This is what things are meant to be like now. And if anything, creation's groaning now ought to grow our expectation and our hope for that glorious future when things will be remade. Now that groaning applies as far as the earth itself is concerned, but it's also true for us as people. And that's where Paul turns his attention next. Let's think about that under a second heading. Christians groan as we wait, assuring us of the glory to come. Verses 23 to 25. Paul began with a childbirth illustration. He then moves from the labor ward to the farmyard. Notice that with me. Verse 23. And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul speaks notice of first fruits. And if you aren't agriculturally or horticulturally minded, the first fruits are the first batch, the first harvest, if you like, of a growing season. And as such, they're a bit of a forerunner. They're the first taste of the full harvest that is soon to follow. And if you're a Christian, says Paul, well, you have already been given that first taste, the first fruits of God's grand harvest project, because, verse 23, you have the Holy Spirit. God himself has come to live within you as a result of the work of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has now entered your life. And that means that as Christians, we do groan, but we do so differently than the world around us groans. I mean, all people groan at the world we live in. All people groan at our own frailty and fragility as creatures. But Christians have even more reason to groan, says Paul. Why? Well, because God's work in us has not been completed yet. Let's notice that again. Verse 23. We ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly 
for adoption as sons. Now, if you are a Christian, God has acted decisively in your life to rescue you to himself. He has begun to transform you, to change you within your inner being. But that job isn't at an end yet. We are not who we one day will be. And that adoption process doesn't just involve a spiritual change, if you like, but a a physical one too. Verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we bear eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now I'm at a stage in my life where I can go to bed at night in full health, feeling in relatively good physical condition, can sleep for several hours, and uh, can wake up with injuries a twinge in my back or a pain in my knee. And all of, literally all I've been doing is lying there flat for a number of hours. My body is growing a bit older. And some of you will roll your eyes at that and say, you don't know the half of it yet, son. For others, though, that kind of frailty is a far more serious thing. Some of us in the church family are facing down cancer right now, for example. Others facing down issues with with cardiovascular systems, with mobility, with sight, with hearing, with memory. Our bodies often give us plenty of reason to groan, don't they? And yet as Christians, whilst we groan, we don't groan as everyone else groans. We groan with hope. We await the redemption of our bodies, says Paul. You see, the Christian hope of eternity, it isn't an ethereal thing. We will not spend eternity as as disembodied spirits. The Bible tells us that one day our bodies will be resurrected, renewed. All of those frailties will be done away with. And that means that if you are a Christian, you may well groan at the frailty of your body now, as, as anyone around you does, your unbelieving friends and colleagues and family members might. But the Holy Spirit living in you means that you groan with hope. Hope at the prospect of that resurrection body, where the frailty that is yours now, it will be done away with. And again, I wonder if you can see how all of that is at odds with the message of Charles Dickens' Great Expectations. One of the big morals of that story is is really not to dream too big, not to have great expectations, just to have slightly more attainable ones. Then you'll never be let down. And we might think that that's what we ought to do as Christians if we're to avoid disappointment in our lives, to set our sights lower, to expect a little less. That isn't the logic of Romans 8 at all. The logic of Romans 8 is that things are going to be great, mind-blowingly great. You're going to to, to have a wonderful experience. You're right to, to long for that day. And in fact, longing for that day is a sign that God is working in you in the here and now. And so as you face the world, Christian, in all its volatility and brokenness, as you feel your own weakness and limitation and frailty within your own body, well, be assured that that frailty and limitation is how things are meant to be now. God has not failed in his plan to restore the world. You're not backing a loser when you devote your life to him. You're groaning now, if anything, is a proof that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. And you can be assured that your expectations for the future, well, they ought to be as high as they are. God will restore this world. He'll restore your body, no matter how frail and broken it might feel just now. He will complete his work in you. 
Now, if you wouldn't consider yourself to be a Christian this evening, I do just want to address you quite directly for a moment, actually, and to ask whether you have any grounds to have expectations for the future at all, or even for the now, for that matter. Whether those expectations are for the planet we live in, that, that Extinction Rebellion might be successful, or that Attenborough achieves all he hopes to achieve, and our world will one day be like Eden. Whether they're great expectations for yourself, that you'll be able through exercise and healthy living to, to, to live a life of prosperity and contentment, and so will all of your loved ones. Are you right to expect that? Because by the logic of, of materialism or of secularism, well, things are random. You're here by accident, and things will only ever really tend towards greater chaos. In which case, this really is the very best you can hope for. We do have a longing for more, though, don't we? We know that things are, well, they're not really meant to be like they are. We expect them to be better. And the question for each of us this evening is whether that expectation is going to be a, a, a sort of cross-your-fingers kind of hope, or whether it's going to be the kind of hope that's grounded in fact. Because you see, the Christian faith affirms that the world isn't as it should be, makes sense of why we groan, but also tells us that there is reason to hope, and not in a, in a cross-your-fingers kind of way. It's a hope that is grounded in fact. Through Jesus' physical death and resurrection, we have historical and tangible proof that God has acted to deal with the decay and frustration in our world and in ourselves. Now, the way we benefit from that, the way we take hold of that hope for ourselves is by acknowledging that the problem isn't just out there, but that I am part of the problem. That I've rejected God, as Adam and Eve did at the beginning. And that by trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we too might be rescued, might long for that future ourselves. I would commend that to you this evening. The stakes are far too high to brush that off. But that isn't quite the whole picture. It is hopefully a reassuring thing to be reminded of the hope we have if we are Christians. It's a helpful thing, I guess, to be reminded of what things are meant to be like in the here and now. That, though, might make it sound as though we're really just treading water until that grand plan finally comes to fruition. But that isn't quite right either. Because even in the here and now, even as we wait and we groan, well, God is still at work. And we'll see that under our final heading this evening. God the Holy Spirit groans, helping and growing us as we await the glory to come, verses 26 to 30. Now, um, if you're new to Hebron, perhaps only been to Sunday evening services here, uh, one feature of, of church life is that Sunday mornings at Hebron are a tad noisier than evening services. We are uh, very thankful to have lots of children here on Sunday mornings who tend to keep things pretty lively. And one really lovely feature of a Sunday morning is that you'll often wander through this room or the foyer downstairs, and you'll see adults trying their best to hold conversations with some of our youngest adherents. I saw it happening this morning, actually, one of our older members trying to have a conversation with one of our toddlers. And they were doing a really great job, making a valiant effort, even though the toddler was speaking a bit of a combination of English and and what sounded like a made-up language, they were doing a great job. And that was a happy exchange. Occasionally, though, with a toddler in particular, you can reach a point where those exchanges are less happy, 
where you can sense that they're experiencing some pretty deep emotion about something, clearly very upset, for example. But they can't quite get the words out to articulate what the problem is. Or at least they can't use words that can be understood by anyone else. And that isn't just an experience for toddlers. See, grown-ups can be so unsettled, so confused, so upset that we can't even fully express ourselves. I remember sitting with someone whose spouse had been through the ringer with medical diagnosis after medical diagnosis and was suffering just terribly. I asked her if she'd been praying about it at all, and she said this, I don't even know what I should be praying for. And I wonder if you can identify with that kind of experience. Because if you can, it isn't unique to you. And in fact, it is part of living in a world that is groaning with a body that is groaning. And that's why it's wonderful that even as you don't know what to pray, what to ask God for, well, God too is groaning. Verse 26. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit, who lives within you if you're a Christian, is praying wordlessly for you as you suffer. Like a father translating the unintelligible thoughts of his toddler to to another adult. He is groaning for you, lifting your concerns to God the Father. And he's doing that with a particular purpose in mind. See, verse 28 of Romans 8 is quite a famous verse in the Bible. You might have quoted it to someone. You might have had it quoted to you. And you might have quoted it or had it quoted to you quite glibly during an especially difficult moment. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, the reason that can feel like quite a glib verse, even when the person who shares it is is well-meaning, is that it can sound like it's downplaying the pain someone is facing. As if to say, you know, I know things are hard, but, but God will use it for your good. Try and see the upside. It is just worth clocking that the good God is working things towards might not be that which we would anticipate. It isn't that all of your dreams will one day come true in this life or that things will work out okay in this life. No, he tells us what it is. Verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The good is to make you more like Jesus. And that good will happen. God has made sure of it. And don't take my word for it. Look at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a golden, unbreakable chain of God's purposes for his people. And I wonder if you can see how that stops us from applying verse 28 in a, in a glib sort of way. God will use all things, even the things that cause us to groan to make us to be more like Jesus. But we might not see that in the here and now, at least not all that clearly. It isn't always possible to look back on a particularly difficult point in your life and to pinpoint exactly what it was that God was trying to teach you or the work he was doing in you at that moment. 
But we can be sure that ultimately that is what he's doing. And not only that, we can be sure that he is with us and groaning for us as he does it. And that means that whatever you might be facing in the here and now, painful though I know things can be for some of us, groaning as some of us are, but we can trust him. Now, as we draw to a close, it is just worth stepping back for a moment to take stock on on, on what we've thought about in this series as a whole and what it means to be human. One reason we thought this series would be a good idea is, is that one of the big pinch points we face in our culture, particularly as Christians in our culture, is that, that what it means to be human is now a contested idea, increasingly so. That gender is a contested idea. The fact that the world was created is a contested idea. And yet as Christians... We don't need to be embarrassed about what the Bible tells us about humanity and and our role in the world. The Bible gives us a far more cogent and persuasive explanation of who we are, of what we're doing here, than you will find anywhere else. And not only is it more persuasive, it's also far more attractive than you'll find anywhere else. Because even though we are not as we are meant to be, and as the world itself one day will be, and we do groan at that, Well, as Christians, we can groan in hope, sure and certain hope of the day when Jesus will return and will make all things new. So let's ask him for his help to stick with him until that day. Let me lead us in prayer. Our God and Father, we come before you in praise this evening. We praise you for sending a rescuer. One who came to forgive us of our rebellion against you, to undo the brokenness of the world in which we live, and whose return will signal the remaking of this broken world. Would you please fix that picture of who Jesus is and of what he came to do, what he did achieve at the cross in us. Even as we groan, our world groans in the here and now. Assure us of the wonderful hope that is ours in him. And for those of us who have yet to trust in you, we ask that you please impress upon them the stakes involved when they decide whether or not to follow Jesus. And ask that even this evening, someone here would ask for his forgiveness. Receive the hope of eternal life in a wonderful new creation where they will live and reign with him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.